Hello and welcome back. This is Phil Hill and I'm here with Glenda Morgan and Neil Mosley again as we're discussing online education across the Atlantic. And even though we're heading into the holidays, life continues to be quite busy in the edtech world, trying to keep track of all the different news items that are coming out, online education, enrollment. So another full full episode for us, I suspect, right now. But uh, welcome both of you and Morgan, take it away. Thanks, Phil. I think, you know, top of mind for me lately has been the enrollment crisis that we're seeing at a lot of institutions. Uh, You know, we both of us have written in the last couple of weeks about um, some of the struggles with some institutions uh, facing an enrollment challenge and making some severe cuts, all of which seem to be too little too late. And yesterday when I opened my email, I I saw that Fontbonne University in St. Louis, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, uh, is is similarly, its its enrollment has halved over the last couple of years or 10 years, and uh, now they're looking at making severe cuts again. It seems like too little too late. But I'm interested in what Neil is seeing, um, perhaps, you know, for, for some perspective across the Atlantic in terms of enrollment challenges. But I'm especially interested in how institutions are responding to that. And are we missing a story in terms of institutions that, that aren't making the news, that are actually heading it off? Yeah, it's a good good question. I mean, I, I, there are definitely enrollment challenges over here. I don't think it's quite of the same nature um, as what's happening uh, where you guys are. I think uh, it's not necessarily um, driven by maybe more of a kind of steady decline. Um, it, it's enrollment challenges because of the way in which inflation has made the student fees that universities receive kind of re- re- reduce in value by about a third. And so it's not necessarily that the trend line is going downwards around enrollments and that causing an existential challenge. It's just that enrollment is so important to universities and HEI's financial sustainability that if, if institutions don't meet targets, then that puts them in a really challenging position. So I think that's the bigger narrative in the UK. And so you will see institutions who maybe haven't met targets laying off staff. And there's been, you know, different examples of that. I think University of Aberdeen um, cut their modern languages department, which is a kind of a separate story, but it, it probably speaks maybe to some of the financial challenges and the decisions that people that universities have to make. So it, it, it is an issue over here. It's an issue that impacts on u- universities' financial sustainability, but it but it's because they're squeezed financially rather than the enrollment trends themselves being on a on a kind of downward trajectory. If that makes sense, so I think. That's but it sounds of- like it's. Are you also saying it's not existential? You know, it's cuts, it's management. Whereas in the U.S., so many, particularly of the small schools, we're talking about how can we even survive? Um, and we're, you know, I don't subscribe to the Clayton Christensen original forecast of you know huge percentage of schools going out of business, but there certainly are schools where this is very existential. Are you not seeing that? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like not on a wide scale. I don't think. I mean, there was um, there's data published about. Um, universities balance balance sheets and I think last time that was published in the press that what it highlighted is um, lots of kind of 
deficits there and in increasing deficits. And for some institutions, they're, they're, they're definitely financially, um, there are some existential issues um, amongst a smaller bunch of, of universities. So yeah, we, we're definitely seeing that, that ha- happening. I, I tend to see the differences from what I hear in the US being uh, much more of an existential issue around the progressive decline. Whereas I think, like I say, for the UK, I think it's more about um, the financial squeeze. But yeah, we, you know, in in short, Phil, yeah, absolutely. There are existential issues around universities. And there's been talk around universities, certain universities going under for a while. There tends to be not like a whole bunch of transparency around that. Yeah, I remember those articles from a few years ago, especially about, yeah, some were really deep in the hole financially. Yeah. And, you know, I think because of the the the, the worry of worrying students, those things don't quite come to the surface um, often. You know, sometimes it's a case of an open secret. Sometimes you're not quite sure which institutions being um, being talked about, I guess. So we win for drama. That's how I'm taking this out of it. To make yeah. it a dramatic situation, you ask for the win. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We, um, we're just far more reserved, Phil. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> You'll walk it off. You'll walk it off. Um, I, I think there's also more pain in the future, just not to, to dwell on this too long. But, um, you know, I saw some interesting data this week. One was... It was the state of West Virginia, which is like ground central for a lot of this. And 90% of all analyses seem to be about the state of West Virginia right now. But um, the percentage of high school students who go on to tertiary education has gone down by 10% in the last few years. And also nationally, the number of Hispanic students that are interested in going on to university has dropped substantially. And in some ways, if going back to the to the Nathan Graw um, work a lot of people are bidding the farm on on it, it, essentially a, a resurgence of Hispanic students coming to college because because they're first in in college so so that was bad. It also is perplexing to me why don't schools really double down on retention like keep the students you already have you know especially some of the weaker schools where retention rates are pretty bad. Um, why is this not you know it always should have been a hair on fire emergency and and why is it not i i saw another interesting statistic yesterday there are more than 100 institutions in the united states who don't graduate a single student in four years not one yeah yeah i don't i think that there's been in u.s higher education there's been too much of uh, this happens in a lot of areas where we take something that's a doomsaying like a clayton christensen prediction or nathan graw and then people poke holes in it, saying, hey, it's overstated. And some of that criticism is very valid. But then higher education is very good to now, now we can protect ourselves and not deal with the reality. So part of what I see is like what you're describing, and I'm glad you mentioned Nathan Groth's work with the demographic cliff. It's not just there are fewer students, it's the mix of students and how many go to college. I think uh, colleges and universities aren't really dealing with that. And what you're seeing with COVID has made it worse. And you look, you know, the chronic absenteeism with our high school students in the U.S., that's on top of all the demographic changes. So I definitely see that as something we haven't fully dealt with in this country. And it's going to make 
enrollment challenges and financial health even more difficult moving forward. So Yeah. I see a lot of two things. One is circling the wagons. You know, like, okay, so, you know, this has happened, but we can still protect what we've got here. And and I also still see a lot of magical thinking. Um, years ago, I was at a college, uh, and, and really a college, where um, there were some real enrollment challenges. And I remember trying to talk the composition department into in, in enlarging the size of classes from 19 to 20. And <laughs> they absolutely dug their heels in and said, no way absolutely not and they were very proud of themselves because it was like they were giving sticking it to the man you know like without understanding the larger picture and it just drives me up the wall or understanding in the long term they are the man yes absolutely well before we do the next topic i do want to add uh, your point about why aren't we doubling down on retention i was talking to one of the main ed tech vendors one of the key executives there um, who was, I was just asking about how business is going. And one of the comments was, we really thought coming out of the pandemic that schools would really start investing much more in student success initiatives and how to engage, you know, retain them, et cetera. And he's just like, we're, that we're not seeing that. Like very surprised how little attention and money is being spent to try to improve retention and success. So... A doom saying, wait, this goes against your uh, your <laughs> New Year's Eve, your New Year's resolution. It's, it's only, I believe, December 6th, so I've still got another 25 days of doom. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the other sort of side of this is the international students. And, you know, I know things are looking okay in the U.S. in some ways, uh, but but with some some bad signs in terms of the number of students from India going up and, and they tend to be less lucrative for, for schools if that's the way you're looking at it. But I know things are things are looking bumpy over there in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it. you know, going back to my earlier point, that kind of financial squeeze has meant a greater focus and a greater dependency on international students in the UK. And, you know, one of the one of the challenges here in the UK is is the debate around immigration and migration. And so we had some figures that weren't uh, with the government and and, and other pe- other commenters thought were too high in terms of net migration uh, in the UK. And so with an election coming up, um, you know that's a big election issue that government isn't control in control of migration and inevitably. Um, that kind of challenge on the way that that's framed uh, feeds its way down into higher education. So we've had measures from government around restricting dependents to uh, being able to come to the UK um, when they're coming to study. And now the government's reviewing the kind of graduate route, which is basically, um, you know, the, the, the ability for students to, to stay, international students to stay in the UK after they study for a certain period of time without um, without certain conditions. So they're kind of reviewing that side of things. And so, you know, it's that kind of classic thing, isn't it, where you just, the political kind of narrative and expedience of it just seems to fly against, uh, you know, sensible decision-making around higher education and the economy and all those kind of things. And so, you know, that's another challenge and another squeeze for universities. If, uh, stu- international students coming to U- UK becomes less attractive 
that's a squeeze on their finances even further. Um, and you'd think that the government might want to support higher education in this. So it's, you know, it's really frustrating in the UK around that kind of thing, that there's not that, there's not that engagement with the nuance around this kind of thing and the government really supporting higher education. Cause you know, things are really tough. Things are really tough in, in UK higher education. A, a quick question for you though, Neil, is, is this a potential problem or are you already seeing the uh, political immigration policies impacting enrollment or is this something we expect to see it? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. So there's definitely been um, conversations I've had around international student numbers um, going down and kind of challenges around that in terms of the perception of the UK as a as a good place for them to come and study and issues around the dependency side of things. So that's definitely, that's definitely played out here uh, in the UK. But then, you know, this just feels like another layer of government you know, hitting higher education over the head in its time of need around international students. So there's, yeah, there's some now and there's some not yet, but coming. So one meta comment, uh, because, you know, we're joking about your New Year's resolution, (laughs) which I, if we start taking bets on how long that lasts, I, I know what my number is. But really what we're talking about is even though there's a small uptick in enrollment in the U.S. in this the overall environment, these macro environments are presenting an environment where the ed tech, the online education, the things that we deal with, it's a very clear, it's a matter of how do you deal with these macro changes? How do you deal with financial pressures, uh, enrollment pressures, student success? And so I know that we're talking a lot about these things that seem like they're outside of technology per se, or outside of online, but it just reinforces that's the environment we're in. And ed tech and online education, so much of it is to deal with the massive macro changes that we're undergoing right now. So just sharing a meta thought that I'm having. Yeah. And I think I think that's interesting in terms of the ways in which ed tech can support the real challenges, because I, I guess sometimes some of the criticism you can lay at the door of some ed tech product, products, if they're they're kind of addressing, they're sort of solutions looking for problems sometimes. Yeah. And you know, I, I think to the point you made around retention, um, I mean, I think firstly for university, there's probably a lot that they could learn from the very best in terms of online education around student success and retention. Um, but, you know, in what ways can technology or the the features within technology, and I guess I'm thinking a little bit around AI perhaps, you know, in what way can that support things like retention and, and some of the problems that we kind of talked about? Well, one positive aspect for me uh, over the years is it used to be that if you looked at online education, that was, and you who's making decisions around that? So often it's like, that's the continuing education department and a few isolated programs that have chosen to go online. And for various reasons, that's fine, but that's not us as an institution. And today it's, it's, it's raised up to the provost, to the president's, it's a very strategic issue. And I don't say that that's good in terms of, oh, good, everything should be about technology. But I think it leads for a healthier environment that you're talking about. And let's get away from the solution and that's looking for a problem. Let's actually solve real problems. 
Well, the good news is we have real problems that need to be addressed. So let's really, in the in this space, online and ed tech should be addressing real things. So maybe it's the end of the year, but I'm reflecting a lot on why we're covering a lot of on the surface non-technology issues. Just uh, just reflecting on that that point, Phil, around online, you know, like online has always had the challenges around retention and continuation. And, and I, you know, I, I, I often kind of take this line of argument, actually, but again, I think I think there's actually lots that universities can learn from, you know, those areas, which, you know, potentially, they haven't thought about as core areas. And, you know, to the point that I made earlier, you know, the, the best of kind of online education programs that really understand and really put in place strategies around retention and continuation. You know, that's where universities can draw insight and, uh, you know, valuable kind of help that might inform, you know, changes that they may, might make more generally. And I think maybe we'll go on to talk, talk about this, but there's, if we're thinking about an existential crisis for higher education, um, then, you know, there's also kind of what needs to change in terms of who we're trying to reach and the ways in which we're trying to reach them. And you mentioned continuing education departments, but, you know, that's another component of the university that probably has, well, almost certainly has, you know, a different experience and a different type of insight that can help feed into addressing some of the challenges that universities face in other areas, I think. So not to say that, you know, everything is contained within, but there's, you know, a whole bunch of areas within the university that I think could be brought in to help address particular challenges and have got something to offer around that. Absolutely. On a changing the um, changing things up a little bit, I just attended the Degrees at Scale conference at, at Georgia Tech. I, I did it virtually, and there's some pluses and minus which I'll 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 talk about later there. But I've always sort of liked that conference because I always like learn a lot from the sessions like in terms of actual facts of things and they, they 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 wanted us to follow chatham house rules so i can't name names particularly but i can talk in the general sort of sense some of the highlights for me were they've seen um apparently enrollment went down a little bit over the pandemic and they've seen enrollment bounce back and most of these degrees are highly uh technical so they're degrees in engineering, you know, some 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 business degrees, but there's a lot of technical ones in there as well, particularly from Colorado and uh, and Georgia Tech. And they're becoming more 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 female. Um, the, the proportion of women is going up, which is sort of interesting. But, um, you know, a couple of things I was struck by. One was the fact that, you know, they're using a lot of other ed tech in there. So Slate and Yellow Dig and some other kinds of things. And I would dearly love to understand some of the some of the economics of these because they're not making sense to me on the surface of things in, in, in terms of how they're actually uh, working with often the provider, in the case of many of them, uh, Coursera, and, and charging pretty low fees and, and still coming out ahead. Yeah. Do they not address the economics or the financial side in the conference? Not in the sessions that I went to. And that was sort of one of my frustrations. You know, it was very valuable. But uh, in terms of the 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 online program was really only about six sessions out of out of a, a much larger total. So 
that was not addressed in any of the sessions that I went to. And, you know, it's, I, I really understand and I really value the ability to, to, to go to a conference remotely, but it, it, it really sort of leaves out for me some of that tacit knowledge. I, it's amazing how important that sort of side conversations and the hallway conversations are uh, in, in terms of learning about what's going on. Um, so the, the, the program that I went to was constrained, but also I didn't have that sort of more side side conversation kind of thing. And although, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's really great to be able to attend virtually and in terms of global warming and things like that, that's the future. But you really get a lot less out of a conference by attending that way than you do in person. So you're really not going to mention high flex in this conversation? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. That would open up too much. I, I would say you're a nicer person than I am or more tolerant. I, I only did that conference once and I realize it's somewhat critical, but the problem I had with the conference is, yeah, you're dealing with these degrees at scale, a lot of the things provided by Coursera. And it's sort of, it's not all MOOC, but it's sort of triggered by the MOOC movement. But I found a lot of the conversations disjointed from reality, very much to, hey, we want to take a philosophical stand. And if we make a statement together, it'll mean deadly squat. And I wish they were talking more about concrete challenges and what they need to do. So maybe that's uh, me being grumpy or maybe this uh, set of this conference was better, but I'm, I have not had the same experience there. Okay, and and it could be a situation of a low bar because I find most conference presentations really bad, in the sense that nobody <laughs> actually talks about the nitty gritty of things. You know, it's all this sort of philosophical thing. Let me provide a a larger perspective, and not talking about okay, this is how many staff I have, and this is what it cost me, and this is what we ran into, and 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 we had to do it differently. Whereas I did get some of that from the the thing, especially as they brought in sort of people that weren't the head of the sections. You know, to talk about the the media and, and 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 things like that. So I did get more nuts and bolts kinds of things. But you know, ultimately people are defensive. So it's it's the sort of Panglossian kind of approach to things. It's like it's going awesome, which which is a conference pro- problem generally. Uh, but I remember one. Um, it was an open edX conference, and Anand Agarwal was was giving uh, one of the talks, and followed by Fiona Hollands, who I I don't know, but whom I love, and he was talking about the the impact of these degrees at scale, and they could lower the cost price. And she 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 stepped up to give her talk, and she said, "I bet most of the students who are paying substantially more would be interested in knowing about this." Um, you know, sort of an acid kind of comment there about how they weren't sort of explaining how that all got sort of sorted out in the wash. Yeah, interesting. I I uh, I have to confess I'm not familiar with that uh, conference, so um, that that's interesting. But I I um, I take your point around missing. Um, I think what we what, how I describe it is missing the kind of opportunity to to get the gossip. Um, in between in between sessions, but I think your broader point around conferences is is something I've been reflecting on this year, having thinking back to the the, the ones that I've been been at. I think there's just a real skill in curating a conference, uh, and I can think of one that I've been to this year that was really well cu- curated. But I think often there's so many tensions around sponsorship and what opportunities that affords and representation 
Was that a good one, if you don't mind me asking? Was that the Leeds conference? That was the Leeds conference, yeah. So the University of Leeds Online Learning Summit, which was um, is, an, is a conference actually that's been running for a while, but it was um, Margaret Korosek, who um, works at Leeds, uh, previously worked at another university, uh, Derby, and ran the conference from there. So it was the first time Leeds kind of had, had hosted the, the conference. And, it, you know, it was a, a really good conference in terms of covering uh, a broad range of areas, all of which were relevant and not too esoteric, uh, we had we had representation from your side of the pond as well. We had Aaron Kessler from MIT, and we had uh, Joanne, I, I forget her surname, forgive me, from Western Governors. So, you know, that's always interesting for a UK audience to hear what's happening elsewhere as well. So that was, yeah, an example of a really well curated conference in my in my view. Yeah, it, I agree. The curation is key, and. When conferences go bad, and I think the majority do from the sessions, um, you know, most you keep hearing, oh, yeah, I got all my value from being at the exhibit hall and having good conversations with good people. And the abstracts look good. But then when I actually hear the session, it's just not there's no meat to it. And I find things very bimodal. I find that most conference sessions, on one hand, they might just be Panglossian, as you were saying, and divorced from reality and soft thinking, but without really any meat to it. Or you have the opposite extreme. Like once you go to it, here's how we did this program. We pulled people into a room and we provided training in an asynchronous format. And it's like just very dry, detailed stuff. That's like, okay, we knew this 10 or 15 years ago. And it's the middle that is missing. The ability to say, we know the bigger problems we're trying to solve. Here's our strategy to deal with it. This is what worked, but more importantly, this is what didn't work. So still need to go to conferences, but uh, yeah, curating needs to improve. Yeah, I think we saw uh, that taken to an extreme or the ultimate sort of goal or not goal, but a result of some of this where Phil and I were at a conference where it turned out that a substantial number of the people had not registered. They had just sat, sat in the bar of the conference hotel. Well, you could say it. this is ASU GSB. And the podcast, all rules are thrown off the table. There's no Chatham House rules with the podcast. That's ASU GSB. And yeah, you're right. It, that conference started, I mean, it was always an expensive, well, maybe not in the Sky Song days. It's become a very important conference but it's very expensive to register and to attend. And they've done a good job of changing the payments and getting uh, representatives from colleges and universities there. But then that leaves the smaller vendors paying large amount of money. And as you said, by this year, there's just a large contingent. And it's not just that they didn't register. That's not what affects me. What affects me is, therefore, they just camp out in a small bar and take over the bar. And so you actually lose some of the abilities, grab somebody in a hallway, hey, let's just go here and chat. You go there and it's a bunch of companies that have their offices in the bar for the entire day. Yeah. And sometime we'll have to discuss the 
the mechanics of conferences and compare them across the Atlantic here. Because I was struck, obviously, I, I went to OEB and um, it'll be interesting to compare, but uh, I, I really did enjoy OEB. It was it was very valuable, but also they fed us amazingly well, <laughs> which increasingly is not the case at many EdTech conferences here. <laughs> you're, you're, you're lucky if you can find a cup of coffee. Well, if we're headed to the, I mean, we are headed towards the end of the year. That might be a good topic for our next podcast. Which are the valuable conferences yep. and what makes them valuable to us? Because I think there's a lot of people who are, they're, they're hungry for that type yes. of knowledge. And uh, yeah, so let's, let's go deeper into that next time. Absolutely. But before we do that, I want to touch on one brief thing. Um, I think Neil actually won the internet yesterday because he was part of a Twitter conversation. Somebody was complaining about trust building exercises and icebreakers and things like that. And Neil pointed out in a tweet that you could probably structure an escape room about how to get out of trust building exercises or icebreakers or some of those uh, terribly annoying uh things that people do at, at, at meetings and conferences. And I laughed so hard that I actually snorted coffee out of my nose <laughs> and really got expelled from a, from a, from, from an airline club. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I was just thinking about, you know, trying to climb out of a window, uh, maybe <laughs> kind of in one of those sessions and, you know, maybe kind of get down to the, the ground floor, you know, that could be a good challenge. Yeah. Well, how many uh, times you go into, I know we keep going back to conferences. That's why when you go into a conference, you immediately look for a chair that's on the aisle so that you can escape without stepping over a bunch of people if you don't know how it's going to be run. But uh, an escape room, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before I get on, on to the next topic, I, I had a colleague at, at, um, at Gartner called Neville Cannon, who's in the government team, and he once famously started a conference session at Gartner. He, he walked in the back and he was mic'd up, and it was about cloud and how you need an exit strategy. And he said, uh, I'm sorry, but the, the announced speaker is not going to be able to make it, uh, so this, this session is cancelled. And then carried on walking and then said, actually, I'm just kidding. I'm here. But like how many of you were looking for the door and yeah. <laughs> found yourself somewhat, somewhat stymied by, by not having an exit strategy to get out of the room now that the, the session had been canceled. But more importantly, I want to talk about um, universities building up their online and their micro-credential or alternative credential capability. This year, uh, well, not this week, this week there were, there were two interesting articles which uh, which came out to me one was one in, in the times higher education uh publication about um universities are going it alone you know to you uh, has has you know is having a hard time and uh you know places are are, are are now looking to perhaps run their own stuff i did not like the article i believe neil didn't like it either but we can go into the details of that there was also a survey that came out. It was an UPSIA modern campus survey about places running uh, micro-credentials, uh, particularly former continuing ed kinds of units running and the kinds of obstacles that they were running into there. It, it, in short, I, and I would recommend you go read the survey, a lot of them are running into the fact that they're underfunded and 
the technology really isn't there. They're struggling with the technology. So I wonder if we can talk a little bit about this and more, because I know Neil had a piece out recently just looking at how a lot of places are, are, are in the UK are, are hiring for online and, and those kinds of things. But perhaps we can explore it a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. I guess there's lots of different components of that. Maybe I'll take the Times Higher Education article first, because that was... That was interesting. I think it kind of aligned a little bit with kind of previous discussions that we've had, because I suppose my my contention with the article was more that it was very one sided and it was one voice offering one perspective. And it was um, the Century Foundation, who I, I have to confess, I, I'm not that familiar with. We, we've heard of them here. You've heard of our... them. Good, good. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, I, I feel like there's there's something behind that comment. So I'll let you I'll let you jump yeah. in in a minute. But you know, there's lots of different perspectives um, on OPMs and on outsourcing, and uh, you kind of usually expect um, journalistic outlets to represent a broader sway of opinion. So that was my take on that. And I think we we'd spoken previously around this idea that. Yes, there are some universities who are maybe at more of a mature stage of their journey around online education and don't feel the need any longer to get a partner or feel like they can um, take a bunch of kind of unbundled services and make that work for them. Um, But there are plenty of universities who are looking for that type of relationship where they can kind of have an OPM relationship to kind of grow. And this piece suggested that you know, that wasn't the case and things were moving in a very clear, clear way away from that, which I think, you know, we probably all acknowledge isn't what we see and hear on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I'm on the same page. It was not a well-written article. I mean, it had some useful information, but it took that one explanation. Here's what's happening. Schools don't need OPM providers in any anymore. And to back this up, let's go to one of the key uh, foundations whose mission is to kill OPM companies. And surprise, their explanation is they're not needed anymore. I mean, that, that whole approach was uh, led to a very poor article, and it misses the key point that I think we're talking about. Are colleges and universities actually ready and staffed and capable of picking up more and more of the abilities needed to do these successful programs? And um, I think it's a very real question to ask, but we just didn't get a good answer from the article. What, and I think I shared this anecdote a couple episodes ago, but you know, one of the schools I worked with, their digital marketing department was set, or their marketing department was setting up that every single web page has to go through them. And they had a backlog, they couldn't change anything. So they didn't have the mindset. It wasn't just staffing. They didn't have the mindset to be able to reach new students, have different needs, and to be able to do that adequately. And that doesn't even get into course design and how to think about things differently, the support services needed. So, yeah, I mean, we're beating up on the article, rightly so, but I don't, I think that schools are not uh, being aggressive enough and taking the type of approach that Southern New Hampshire did. There's too much of a, hey, we need to compete with Southern New Hampshire University, which is the largest institution in the U.S. now, um, without, how did they do that? Well, the way they did that is when, uh, and 
Paul LeBlanc deservedly gets a lot of credit. When he became president, they looked at what they were doing. They realized they needed to have a strong online presence. And then they essentially treated it as like a Harvard Business School case study. They redesigned the institution from the ground up to serve those needs, get the job done, and do it themselves. They have a lot of partners, but they don't need an OPM. That's what I find that too many schools are not doing, saying, hey, wait, what's needed? How do we rethink it and then make sure we're staffed and organized to do it? And there's too much of an incremental, oh, we don't need OPM, we can do this, but we're going to try it the same way we do face-to-face without realizing the different needs. So I think there's a legitimate question. More schools are doing that. It's just way too slow and too little transformation in the approach. And Phil, did did, um, Southern New Hampshire really come to a, a tough place in order to kind of then, you know, change strategy. And and I, I, I thought that that was the case, but I just wondered if you if you feel that, you know, it's going to take that for a lot of institutions to be able to kind of make that change. Yes, and yes. I mean, it, definitely, they were small, mostly uh, on-campus, private university in New Hampshire. Yes, they were looking at, not, we're going out of business next year, but... The board clearly supported the transformation approach. I don't think, I don't know, it'd be interesting to go back in time. Did anybody have any idea of the size and the influence they would get to? Like, I don't think they sat down and said, we want to be the largest in the country. But they definitely had the tough choice that led them to support the change. And do I, going to your second part, do I think that for a lot of traditional schools, do they need that? I'd say yes is a lot of, it's got to shake them out of complacency. But but most of them are unwilling to put the resources necessary into actually making that transition. Just one little data point, and I want to write about this either this week or next week, but, um, you know, and, and keying off of a blog post from Neil, you know, a lot of places are starting to staff up now, particularly at that senior level, somebody to run online learning. But what I'm seeing is there's a giant disparity between salaries, you know, and so a lot of people are coming into the market offering a salary that is way too low to get somebody who actually knows how to do this. And and further, it goes beyond that that initial person. Then they, they, they don't understand the capital upfront it's going to take to actually build a proper and viable online program. So they're really underestimating one, the money, but also the time. You know, I've got a, a slide that I often show that shows uh, UCF's growth over time. And it took a long, long time to get them where they are now. And and it was a slow growth. And even um, Arizona State, which you know, grew with the help of an OPM, it was, it was, it was, it took some time. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's an interesting area because I think there's there's no there's getting to a place where you feel you need help or you feel you need to change but that's not the same as really knowing the ways in which you need to change and where you need help and what that looks like and I think that's one of the big challenges I mean the you know the point you made around online education senior roles um you know, there's there's a whole different f- flavor across institutions around that c- that kind of thing, um, which influences things like the disparity in salaries across across the piece. Um, but you know, you could even say that that is an example of 
we know we need to move in this direction. We think we need this role. We're going to situate it here. We're going to give this role this amount of responsibilities. Um, and, you know, sometimes they don't seem to, I, I don't know, they don't seem to quite hit the mark, I think, sometimes. So I was interviewed early in the pandemic. I can't remember the exact details of it, but it was somebody I was getting asked by uh, some publication about, you know, should schools as part of the changes here, should they now be investing in true online infrastructure? You know, when's the right time to, you know, develop these capabilities? And I, and I basically said, yes, they should invest. And they, in the question of when should they invest? I said a decade ago. You know, and to your point, Morgan, so many, it takes time to develop these capabilities and it takes a lot of time if you're going to underpay key staff to be able to develop that new capability. Um, so yeah, higher ed, see, this gets to a lot of what I see with higher ed. I think we're going the right direction in so many areas, reaching out to new students, realizing there's more support. It just, it doesn't need to take this long. There's so many decisions made in higher ed, such as what you guys are mentioning around salaries, that cause the change to take longer than it should be taking. Yeah, absolutely. I want to put a, a slightly more uh, hopeful spin on what you said. They should have been investing a decade ago. You know, the old uh, personal finance thing, you know, when is a good time to invest in retirement? One, the you know, 20 years ago was, was a good time to start saving for retirement the second best time to start saving is today. So places should get on it today. Oh, you could sell a book and have a stick <laughs> based on that. Yeah. <laughs> Phil and I have known each other a good 20 years now. And in that all that time, we've been talking about having a shtick. So maybe that would be my shtick. Okay. And I'll actually choose to not mention the name that caused that initial yes. conversation we had. There was somebody who uh, was very influential, but every time you would see a talk, it's like, oh, it's the same thing, but it's successful. They get invited to all the conferences, get quoted all the time. They need a shtick. And, and among the other reasons that we're not mentioning the name was it was somebody who was always very, very, very nice to me. <laughs> so. Oh, that's a weakness. Oh, sorry. But yeah. Well, let me let me ask the positive side of this is I mean, since we do have existential crises that we're mentioning and since there is a general trend to schools picking up new capabilities, is there any acceleration happening? Like I'm arguing that things are slower than they need to be, but are we seeing signs that schools are at least accelerating their slow processes to be able to develop online programs and not just online programs, online courses for a mix and match mode and continuing ed, non-matriculated students? Are you guys, do you sense an acceleration? Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I I couldn't I couldn't characterize it as an acceleration, but you know, to pick up the hopeful theme, you know, there, there's plenty of things happening, which is a really positive thing. And I think, you know, thinking about online education, you know, it was niche and underprioritized, I think, for a long time. And and that's changing. So that can only be a a good thing. And and I guess my hope is that you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast, there's a lot that other forms of 
learning and teaching can learn from the best of online education. Um, and I think, you know, some of the things that we're talking around, the kind of challenges of high, that higher education faces are a little bit around reaching a new audience in different ways. Um, and online education is just one facet of that. So, you know, there's real, you know, potential for the, the kind of moves that we're seeing more widely um, to kind of help influence, um, you know, the the developments that happen in other areas too, I think. I I think I don't see a lot of places moving very quickly. I see places moving slowly. And I think we're going to land up with a situation, um, and I'm, I'm contradicting myself, but in a way... Yesterday, you wrote a blog post about 2U and the, the the economics of it. And essentially, one of your points was the rich are getting richer. You know, yes. um, uh, the people that got in early and got out of 2U and, and Harvard and MIT made 800 million on 80 billion investments. So they're getting richer. But I see the places that are already doing it well, continuing to grow. Um, you know, your Oregon states, your Arizona states and things like that. So it's going to be, be, be even more difficult uh, for, for places to break in, uh, especially as people are going after the same kinds of things. Um, I used to give a talk about uh, online where my beginning slide was a slide of eight-year-olds playing soccer. And you know, if if you've ever watched eight-year-olds playing football or soccer, they all run to the ball and then the ball shoots out and then they all go and run to the ball like a little club. And, and that's how I see online learning is everybody clusters around the same kinds of things. You know, we're all going to offer an MBA. We're all going to offer the same kind of thing. And nobody really finds the white space or the um, the new thing. It's all following the crowd. Yeah. Or uh, degree completion was a big, it still is a big motivation. And then you get the same stats. This many million adults have some college credit. But 40 no million. Degree. And we're going to go after that, just like the past 50 announcements we heard from 50 other schools. That's another example. I think it comes down a little bit to strategy and the lack thereof, some of this kind of thing. Because I think, you know, you can want to get into online education and you can look at the kind of common areas um, where there are programs and titles and things like that. But, you know, the key question is, what is going to differentiate you from everyone else? Wow, I've, we have cue cards on the podcast. I know we don't record the video, but uh, Morgan had pre-made uh, cue cards to say, all right, shut it down, people, but that's good. <laughs> so I would, uh, as we start to close this one down, it's been a great conversation, but I think there are two things we could do in, in upcoming episodes and the, picking up on these discussions. One is conferences. Where are we getting value from conferences and meeting with other people and share it with our you know, uh, listeners? And, and also, what are the successful elements of those conferences? But then we should also, I think it'd be worth sort of exploring where things are going well What are, uh, for online programs. You, met, uh, you mentioned Oregon State. What about a deeper dive into what are the aspects of their programs that are going well? well? You know, some of the things that are happening through you know, US, UK, but even outside of that, I think we could uh, sort of, let's discuss highlights of those success factors and opportunities. So maybe this will force us into a joint resolution to look at more of the positive side. But it's been uh, great talking today and uh, look forward to our next episode.